you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Mr. President, I'm here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun. He's gonna shoot the president. Holy smokes, I've gotta do something. All right, Lee. Time to become an American hero. Darkmyths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the show. Sorry it's taking me a little while. I haven't been uh, feeling too hot lately. Probably still sound like crap, but I'm getting better. Um, look, this week I got a great show for you. Stu Weckler is on the show, <clears throat> and uh, I've also been trying to clean up this audio a little bit. I mean, it sounds okay. Uh, don't get me wrong. And there's just a slight echo on Stu's end at times, not the whole interview. Uh, it does start off with a little echo, but it cle- it clears up. Um, normally I would probably do, do an interview over if it sounds like this, but you know, this information contained within this podcast is, is quite frankly, uh, needs to be heard. And I don't think we can catch lightning in a bottle twice as far as what we covered in this, in this show. So I'm releasing it as is, um, you know, this, this whole thing is a learning thing. You know, I got this new, uh, new way I'm, I'm recording the show and, uh, it, it's totally my fault. I probably should have told Stu to put in headphones, uh, which cut, cut down on the echo. But, uh, you know, like I said, it's a learning thing and I will learn, uh, next time. <laughs> I promise. Uh, but anyway, this show is brought to you by covertbookreport.com this week. Make sure you head over there and check it out. There's always a link over at tlgpodcast.com if you can't remember it. Uh, it's chock full of informative and well-researched articles for you to check out. And uh, I highly recommend it. That's covertbookreport.com. Uh, let's see, what else? Not much else except Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa, uh, you know, all that good stuff, it's coming up, um, and probably won't have a show out before then, uh, so it'll be after the holidays when I talk to you again, but anyway, enjoy the show, people, like I said, this is Stu Wexler, and you're not gonna want to miss this one, trust me. 
What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode number 134 of the Lone Gunman Podcast, and I'm your host, Rob Clark. And today, a special treat for everyone. I have the co-chairman of Lancer. I also have the author of America's Secret Jihad, The Awful Grace of God, Religious Terrorism, White Supremacy, and the Unsolved Murder of Martin Luther King, and Shadow Warfare. Stu Wexler joins me. How you doing, Stu? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, buddy. I'm doing great. Finally get to talk to you. I've been wanting to for a long time, my friend. Yeah, and I'm uh, active listener to your show, so I've been looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, we've been kind of talking behind the scenes for for many many months now about a variety of topics. I know the I know the right wing is is, is an interest of yours, of course. Uh, big time, and you had some fascinating shows and managed to hook me up with some very interesting people. Yeah, I mean after after looking at. Uh, you know, General Walker for for a while, and and you know, it kind of opened up into the the John Birch Society and the Minutemen and what what all these guys were doing, and uh, you know, not just with JFK either. You know, a lot with with MLK, it kind of seeps over, and you see kind of the same characters popping up. Yeah, it's definitely names that were familiar in both that crossed over in both the MLK research and the JFK research. Oh, for sure, for sure. So, um, tell me a little bit. How was uh, Lancer this year? Lancer was great, um, very fluid, uh, several very interesting presentations. I think it's almost the, a little bit of the calm before the storm because I think next year is going to be one of the more monumental years in Kennedy assassination research for a lot of reasons, not just the potential release of files in October. So you think we're going to be getting some big revelations coming? I'm very hopeful. I think uh, from what I understand, three or four people are coming out with books and all of them, to the extent that I know anything about them, and I only know very little about them, um, but the very little I know suggests that they could be really groundbreaking. Well, that's good. That's good because it's been a while since you know we've had a really a groundbreaking book you know, or any research, you know, on the Kennedy assassination, it's, you know, I mean, it comes in sporadic spurts, but, um, you know, some of it's not always on the pro on the pro finding out things side of things. It's more of debunking certain myths that we kind of associate with the case. Right. And I, and I think that's also an incredibly valuable thing. I think this year though, that's coming up and I, I kind of like you, I think I generally think that, that books fall into three categories. They either, uh, clean out, sweep away some of the dust that we need to sweep away. They synthesize information that already exists and maybe add a little bit of new, uh, or they break new ground. We haven't had a break new ground book in a while. And I think we're going to maybe get as many as three next year, and that's before the files get released. Yeah, I mean, the, the last one I can think of that really, really caught my attention was last year when that the, uh, General Walker and the murder of President Kennedy came out. I thought that was a really, really good book and a lot, a lot of new stuff in it. Uh, I've, I haven't d given the book as much time as I should, but I've given, given it some time and I'll be honest with you. I think it, it has more to offer for me on the, uh, King front as oddly as it, even though it really doesn't focus on that at all, than it does on the Kennedy front. 
I do think uh, Caulfield does have some very interesting uh, arguments that, from what I can see, but I, I do think it falls short. Maybe we can talk about that later in, in one particular area. And, you know, I'm not opposed, and my co-author on Awful Grace of God, Larry and I, we've talked about this more than once, to the idea that there was a right-wing conspiracy that eventually successfully – not successfully, but attempted or thought about going after uh, John Kennedy. We just don't think it's the one that actually <laughs> materialized. Yeah, you know, that's one thing when you look at this case and you try to you try to really grasp a credible threat to the president's life. You know, the one thing that keeps coming up over and over is, is, you know, his, his heat that he's soft on communism and, you know, guys like General Walker and, and the extreme right wing, you know, did pose a credible threat. You know, there, there were threats uh, investigated against him from these guys. You know, you can't discount what Miltier said, um, you know, and, and a ton of other things. And then when you look at Oswald and you see this, this poor guy with no motive, you know, it's kind of makes you scratch your head. Right. I mean, right. it's 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 the odd situation with the Kennedy assassination, I guess, is on the one hand. You almost are uh, inundated with the sheer number of groups of people who uh, had serious problems with the president, and it's so many of them that it's hard to make sense of anything, uh, mutually exclusive groups. Uh, and at the same time, you have all these people with these motives, and then you have the accused assassin who – you know, according to all the counts that we have, was at worst indifferent and at best fond of the president and trying to make sense of why, you know, that dichotomy is is part of, I think, what makes the, the case baffling to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, you look at the CIA and, and you know, of course, it could have been rogue, rogue elements in the CIA. And, you know, you can see why they would have would have wanted him taken out, you know, just for self-preservation reasons, because, um, you know, he what Kennedy wasn't really too fond of how the CIA was uh, conducting his business. And, you know, I think that secret society speech was aimed at their general direction. Yeah. Oh, I think yeah, I mean, you, I, I could probably sit here and list 12 groups. And again, some of them are mutually exclusive. I mean, we in, in within the research community, it's it's almost you know you, people only say it in hushed tones. But you know, Castro had a motive. The Secret Service potentially, although I mean, I don't you know I wouldn't put them on the top of my list. Mafia had Mafia motive. Had motive. Uh, rogue uh, KGB rogue had KGB motive. Had rogue motive. CIA had motive. Yeah. Alan Dulles had motive. I mean, yeah. you could go through almost every almost group, every. and somebody had a motive. It's it's almost why. Going the who had the motive route is is possibly the worst route to go, I would think. Yeah, no doubt. And you know, then you got to look at who would actually have the balls to actually, you know, try to pull this off. Because I mean, right. if, and you know, at the ultimate end of the day, somebody, somebody could have less have of a less quote unquote, if you want to call it that motive, that motive as, somebody else, as somebody else. But that doesn't mean they, that didn't, doesn't do mean they didn't do it. You know, someone could right. hate somebody on a scale of one to ten on a seven, and another one could hate somebody on a scale of one to ten on a ten. It doesn't mean that the seven didn't do it and the ten did. So ultimately, you need to find you know evidence, and I and I think and it actually gets to where my you know I started my presentation at Lancer. Uh, it's a harder road to hoe, but I think you have to work up 
from either Oswald or Ruby or both and try and find a group that had a motive. Unless you've got something that's so solid on the top-down front that it's hard to argue that it's almost, you know, implies inevitably what happened in Dallas. I think you have to take the tougher row and you have to move your way up from the bottom up. Yeah, no doubt. And, and of course, when you're looking at Oswald, you know, he's associated with, you know, a lot of the elements that we're talking about here, you know, uh, the extreme right, the, uh, the, the Russians, uh, you know, right. uh, the CIA, uh, anti-Castro, you know, FBI, it's, he can go in a lot of potential directions too, which I think even makes it harder because I think what you have to do is try, and I think it's the great, great, sort of gap in in where researchers have gone you really have to get to october and november and i think we've done a fascinating job of getting through the end of september and we fall short on october and november right i mean well you know either way you slice it even when you go back a little earlier to the summer of 63 and you see what was going on there in new orleans either oswald was a seriously uh you know embedded marxist and and castro lover and trying to do this or you know he was he was put up to do to acting like he was you know right and then who would have done the putting up because you could get that from anti-castro people you could get that banister right wing people and i thought the one big thing that i think caulfield really did was place banister in in an even more firmer right wing context than he already was it could be pro castro folks there's all these double agents that are running around in the anti-castro community and you know and, and then you know the to be fair, you could have some kind of weird loan gunman thing, I guess, coming from it also. And that's why I say, I mean, you've got to get it closer to the day of. Because until you can get it close to the day of, even Oswald takes you in five or six different directions. Yeah, no doubt. And I think that was part of uh, Carmine's focus was was maybe the last uh, 72 hours, you know, of, of – I think he even narrowed it down further than that as to, you know, how much time Oswald would have had to actually plan on doing this if he did it. Right. And I think that, I mean, Carmine was great seeing him at the conference. I think a big part of, you know, the last 72 hours is, is, is a big part of it. Uh, The way I, I couched it at Lancer is this, you could believe Oswald was a lone gunman. You could believe Oswald was a shooter in a conspiracy you could believe he was a complete dupe you still need to find out in the complete dupe scenario unless you think these folks are going to take a risk on framing somebody who they have absolutely no control over on the day of the assassination which is a huge risk when you think about it he could have been outside in front of a thousand cameras he could have been eating lunch and everyone could have actually vouched for his alibi so you so have to have you have to assume the most likely assumption is someone had the ability to get him to be where he was on November 22nd 
and somehow influence or control his movements. And unless you know who that is, you're going to have a problem. And, you know, I, in fairness to, you know, even folks like, like Posner, his argument has always been show me how somebody, show me the person who manipulated Oswald. I, my response would be I don't think people have seriously looked. Um, yeah. At least in the, I, I should say, at least in the two weeks of. If you really want to nail it down, I think you got to get into those one to two weeks uh, leading up to the assassination. Really, the month, the two months, week, last two weeks, last seventy-two hours, last twenty-four hours. Yeah, no doubt. And I'm, I mean, one thing that I that I kind of gleaned from from Caulfield's book was, you know, I was always looking for some some kind of a, a connection between. You know, of, of course, after Jack Ruby was arrested and he was in front of the Warren Commission, you know, he begged them, hey, you know, get me out of Dallas because I am scared to death of the John Birch Society and, and General Walker. And, of course, we know he was going around taking pictures of these, you know, extreme right billboards, you know, the morning after the assassination. But, you know, there was always that link missing between Ruby and just about anybody else in Dallas. Um, and, you know, he he had in his book. Uh, you know, the testimony of William Duff, who actually put Ruby meeting with General Walker at his house, you know, in, in early 62, late 60 or early, late 62, early 63. I'm sorry, which I thought was right. pretty interesting. Right. Well, Ruby, though, is also gets a little bit tricky, too, because he connects to underworld figures. He connects to Dallas cops. He connects to, you know, gun running. <laughs> and to be honest with you, more so than. Than, than the Oswald situation, Ruby confuses me as much as anybody. I, 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 I lean against it, but I could believe that he even was a vigilante, more so than I could believe Oswald went alone at this thing. But it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think he was definitely dirtier than just a, uh, you know, a hapless barkeep there in Dallas who wanted to, you know, to take revenge for, for Jackie Kennedy so she wouldn't have to come back to the trial. Yeah, I, I lean against it, um, you know, but I'm more open to it when you hear some of the people who knew Ruby and how tempestuous he was. I'm a little bit more open to that than I am. It's still not fully, and I'm more inclined to think it was part of a conspiracy. Um, but, uh, I'm more inclined towards that than towards Oswald's being by himself alone gunman. Yeah. Yeah. One, one figure. I I lean towards both. Yeah. Well, one figure that always intrigued me, you know, when, when talking about Ruby is this guy, Larry Crayford, who kind of appears out of nowhere and about the same time Oswald gets his job at the school book depository. And, uh, you know, it turns out he was actually in the, in the army in Germany under General Walker <laughs> in like the early 60s, which is yeah, odd. Yeah, that's, that's certainly that's suspicious. Certainly but then, you know, then, you know, we also have with Ruby the Thomas Eli Davis connection. Yeah. Uh, we have connections to Gordon McClendon. We have connections to Joseph Savello, to various people on the Dallas police. Uh, he's uh, a government informant at one point. Uh, it's or and a potential criminal informant. So he becomes again. It's one of these things that leads you in multiple different directions, which is why it becomes more important to nail down those last couple of weeks, forty last seventy-two hours, last twenty-four hours. 
Yeah, well, well, let's let's talk a little bit more about Oswald and, and what you presented on him at, in, at Lancer with his library card and all that. Because, I mean, just from looking at at you know the list um, of the books that he had checked out of the library there in '63 and and was reading, um, you know, it's it's a quite an extensive list, and and of course very uh, varied in you know from science fiction to biographies, um, you know. It seems to me like this guy wouldn't have a lot of free time. Right. Well, there's there's that. To, the, I, I I focused on something else with this library card, less so than his reading habits, which I do find fascinating. I focused. Where does the what does does the card itself point us in any directions as to who might have had the ability to influence Lee Harvey Oswald again in those twenty four to seventy two hours? And it, I found – I mean other people have explored it and found similar things. I found two or three additional things, and it's one of these situations where this is either a series of really weird rabbit holes. It could be one or two rabbit holes and one really legitimate lead, or it's something that really is uh, pregnant with conspiratorial possibilities. And I don't know where to stand on it, and I'll, I'll share it with the with your audience, and I'll let them draw their own conclusions. Yeah, because um, I mean, it, it's even off my radar. Uh, you know, yeah. I haven't really looked into it at all either. Uh, so you can go with the way I put it is is there's three major directions that the card takes you. They all tend to link up at a place called More Chevrolet in Dallas that uh, has had very little attention paid to it. Some of the other elements of this story have had attention paid to it, but just maybe not as extensively as they could have. So uh, I'll quickly list the three ways it goes. The one thing, the one really interesting lead comes from the very person whose name is on the card as a reference. The second really interesting lead has to do with Someone who worked at the building where the this person who's the reference, his library card was, which is more Chevrolet. And then the third has to do with something called the Texas Import Export Company and a guy named Alexander Kleinler. All of them link up to the library card and are in one or two steps removed from the person whose name is at the bottom of the card as a reference – named Jack Bowen or Jack Leslie Bowen. He worked with Oswald at Jagger's Charles Stovall, and this is really the first area of interest, and it's the one that's been the most explored. So Oswald uses the name Jack L. Bowen on his – who lives in Oak Cliff, which is also interesting – on his library card as a reference. And so – it's found in Oswald's belongings on the day of the assassination in his wallet, although that's a whole other story. And the FBI decides to run down who this person is. Is he an associate of Oswald? Who is he? And what they find is the, they find a Jack L. Bowen in New York, and he says he knew and worked with Oswald at Jagger's Giles Stovall. That's the – for the audience, that's the – film defense contractor company that Oswald works in uh, 
early part of 63, late 62. Um, and so Oswald's working there. And according to Bowen, they have a conversation. Oswald expressed an interest in getting a library card. And Bowen says to him, well, my girlfriend's a secretary at the Dallas Public Library. Use my name. So a couple things come out of this. The first is that Jack L. Bowen isn't really Jack L. Bowen. Jack L. Bowen is really a guy by the name of Grossi. Uh, John uh, Caesar Grossi. And John Caesar Grossi has been living under an alias. And that's because he's a career career criminal. criminal. Hmm. And so so the guy who Oswald, so just so the audience gets back to this, it's going to be a little bit difficult to follow. The guy that Oswald has on a reference for the getting his library card is a guy who is actually a career criminal who who really did work with Oswald the Jaggers, but did so under an assumed name. And so a couple uh, one other thing that emerges out of this that doesn't even get commented on by the FBI is that it's actually false that his girlfriend worked at the public library. It's difficult to work too much with his false statements because what he appears to be is a con man. Somebody who develops relationships, say, with business people and with owners and tries to fleece them for money. That's one of the things Bowen does or Grossi. The other thing is is he appears to be involved. I mean the thing he was on the run from was a uh, a bank robbery charge. So it doesn't stop there either because if you look more deeply into Grossi… What you'll find is by no later than 1970, he's citing some very interesting people as having close relationships with him or a relationship with him. The two he names are Bonanno, Joseph Bonanno, and a guy named Pete Licavoli. Bonanno and Licavoli are two big-time mobsters. They're not small-time. Licavoli works out of the Midwest, uh, out of the Cleveland and Detroit area. And Bonanno is at that time working out of the Southwest, and they're big-time mobsters. Yeah, I've heard and, them before, for sure. And uh, Grossi even says that, in, at least in 1970, he has stayed at Grace Ranch in Arizona, which is Licavoli's ranch, but Licavoli's a very close relationship with Bonanno, who controls the territory. Now, if you know your Kenny assassination lore, these aren't the two most common names, but they're two very interesting figures. Uh, Licavoli has been connected in a recent book with – directly with an assassination attempt. He was connected by a guy who might be familiar with with JFK assassination, which is at least Chauncey – Holt connects Grace Ranch directly with the Kennedy assassination. Now, I'm not the biggest believer in Chauncey Holt's story, but he falls into that category of people Holt claimed in the 90s 
that he was the guy who delivered the fake Secret Service ID to fake Secret Service agents on the grassy knoll. Yeah. And he actually came from Grace Ranch. People have claimed that he looks remarkably like one of the tramps, but I believe the tramps have been identified and they're real tramps. That's one of the problems with Holt's story. But his story is unique enough that I believe he's one of these people who has peripheral knowledge, maybe, and connects to the assassination. But a completely independent book published by, uh, of all people, uh, uh, Sam Giancana's neurologist, he uncovered documents where Licavoli is, is implicated in the assassination. Bonanno's son more or less implicates Bonanno in his book, but I don't know how much I buy into that or at least that his father had knowledge. Right. And Bonanno, what I did not know is Bonanno was very intimately involved with Castro assassination attempts. He apparently had like a, some kind of private line to Richard Bissell and the CIA. And so the, the involvement of those two people together, Bob, Licavoli is very closely connected with the Cleveland mob. That connects. He's very closely connected with uh, – what's his name out of Nevada? Name suddenly slips my mind, but he's he's very close with Cleveland Mob. One of the Cleveland mobsters works out of Vegas, and if you remember, the Paulino Sierra Homer Echeverria story, uh, remember that there was a Cleveland connection, and he's, the guy says that as soon as this is pre-assassination, one of these guys who's a gun runner says as soon as, um, you know, the Kennedy's situation is cleared up. I've got people, Jews from Cleveland. Well, that's actually where this might link up. But you do have now documents, supposedly, if you believe Giancana's former neurologist, uh, that link Licavoli up to the assassination. So you got Licavoli and Bonanno are, are very interesting figures, and Grossi, Bowen, the person who's the reference on Oswald's library card, links up to them, which is incredibly interesting. interesting. Yeah, That's just one lead. One lead. Uh, the, uh, second the second lead goes to goes what, to what Bowen says. Bowen he tells – the, the FBI actually asks him for where his library card is, and he says, well, I left it with my friend, a guy named Edward Riddell. And so the so FBI the goes FBI looking for Riddell and, the, and Bowen's library card, and Riddell works at Moore Chevrolet in Dallas. Now, Riddell takes you in two directions. One is going to be the third thing I thought, I, I, I thought about. The other one – the third thing I'm going to talk about, but the other one is the second thing I'm going to talk about, which is Moore Chevrolet – becomes very interesting because if you dig in, you'll find out that there was another car salesman. Now, we know he worked there in 1962. We know he did not work there in 1964. I am still trying to find out if he worked there in the relevant time periods during 1963. 
Now, first thing, by the way, that should occur to you is was pointed out by Larry Hancock and is what is a career con man with serious mob connections doing with a library card to begin with? Right. And, and yeah. what is he doing loaning it to some random friend in Dallas? It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'll speculate maybe at the end with you about it, but okay. – the other person the other who works person at Moore Chevrolet, who we don't know if he worked there in 63, what we're trying to find out, is a guy named Charles Waters. And Charles Waters becomes incredibly interesting because he appears to – either he was – people were trying to set him up as or he was actually involved in two different Oswald impersonations – and they're two of the oddest ones in the entire assassination lore because they occur when Oswald's in Russia. And one of them your the reader the your listeners may be familiar with. It's the what we call the uh the Bolton Ford incident. Right, yeah. And this is an incident and I believe it's in Caulfield's book where uh, and it's in many other books where uh, right before the right Bay, before of Pigs, Bay of Pigs, a couple of men couple show, men up, show at up at a auto dealership, auto dealership. Ostensibly, ostensibly to get, to get Jeeps. Jeeps, and they're and from they're one from of these anti-Castro groups. It's like Free Cuba Committee, right? And, and one of them identifies them himself identifies as Joseph Moore, and Joseph Moore is a very interesting very figure. Interesting if you follow, follow Garrison, Garrison and other people other like Larry Hancock. Hancock. Somebody fitting the description of Joseph Moore, some a bull-necked, stocky Mexican, shows up with Oswald all over the place. So some people speculate that whoever this person is, if it's the same person because it's the same description, that this person is some kind of shepherd for Oswald. The other person who shows up, a blonde person about five foot eight, uh, insists on using the name Lee Oswald as the name to buy these Jeeps and trucks. Problem again is this is pre-Bay of Pigs. Oswald's in in Russia. Now, I don't yeah, find this to be as, as bizarre as some people do because it turns out that if you look at the people who run the group, Bannister's in the group. Uh, but there's another person who's in the group. Uh, I think his last name was Tuhagwe, who actually at one time employed Oswald when Oswald was a teenager in New Orleans. So I could even imagine a but completely summed by nine incident you know instance where this guy reads about oswald going defecting to russia becomes super upset with what he sees as some kind of betrayal you know he gave this knuckle-headed kid a job or whatever and then says you know what we're gonna use this guy's name almost like a joke uh, uh when we are doing our anti-castro stuff you know, this uh, is the guy person. that this is the guy that Armstrong. I think Armstrong refers to him as Two Jacks. Uh, it was an employer of Oswald when he was a teenager in New Orleans, right? Correct. The two Jags or something like that, yeah. And he then, um, this the situation is is that I mean, this is one of the more well established 
stories. Both employees, they had the receipt. Um, and the, the, the group involved uh, is uh, a group run by a guy named William Dalzell. And people miss this, but if you go to Dalzell's grand jury testimony to Garrison, you'll see that the, the, the Garrison folks ask him about this incident. And it's not too hard to read between the lines. It's pretty darn clear that Dalzell is all but saying Charles Waters is the guy who impersonated Oswald. He gives the description of Charles Waters, and Charles Waters fits the description of the Oswald who went to the group. He explains that Charles Dalzell is an active member of the group, and he says that Charles Dalzell uh, – Charles Dalzell, I mean Charles Waters, I'm sorry. He says that Charles Waters not only fits the description, Charles Waters was the only person who had permission to make purchases of this kind for the group. Right. Now, I, again, this is probably confusing your readers, so I'll just remind them one more time. When they go to find Jack Bowen's library card, because they found him as a reference on Oswald's library card, they go to more Chevrolet. Well, it's at least a very distinct possibility that somebody working at that at that Chevrolet dealership, Charles Waters – was involved in an Oswald impersonation. And here's the crazy part. It wasn't the only one. There's a completely independent story uh, from a guy – hold on a second. I'm just trying to remember his name. Um, uh, Ray Carney is a radio disc jockey, I guess you would call it, um, out of Texas. And in 1961, and this is important, this is before Kennedy's assassination. There's actually a 61 report about this. He describes being approached by Charles Waters and a series of other people and a series of additional encounters after the Bay of Pigs to find pilots and other people to be involved in an anti-Castro operation. And then oddly in 1963, recontacts the Dallas police to tell them that part of this 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 you know find me pilots scenario included somebody who pretended to be Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, so that puts Charles Waters right in the middle of another potential Oswald impersonation. Right? So to remind your audience one more time, the guy who's working at the auto dealership where they find Jack Bowen's library card and the person who he lent it to, there's another guy working there, Charles Waters, who was involved in possibly as many as two Oswald impersonations while Oswald was in Russia. So digest yeah, I mean, that for a second. <laughs> well, um, even, and then have, let me we, add one more yeah. one more thing to the to the to the pot that makes it even makes more, it suspicious. more suspicious. They some of the some audience of the might remember that they found the map amongst Oswald's belongings, a map of Dallas with markings on it. Right. And initially they tried to pass it off as it was like markings that had to do with killing Kennedy, and then it became 
the storyline was that it was markings that had to do with Oswald looking for a job. Well, the FBI, there was about 13 markings. The FBI ran down all 13. One of the markings on Oswald's map was for more Chevrolet. So you add it all up. You got this weird guy with a criminal background and some pretty serious connections having oddly gotten his name onto Oswald's library card as a reference. If Oswald were just hypothetically going to meet up with somebody in hypothetically more Chevrolet – and he took out his library card. Well, there was somebody there who could have taken out his the Bowen's library card, and suddenly it's like the half a dollar bill matchup. You've got a connection. Now, just hypothetically, if Oswald was somebody who you know happened to run around talking about how he wanted to do something for the anti-Castro cause, if you remember, he made that was something that was a pattern. That was common in Oswald's life, and if he had happened to have said that at Jagger's to a guy like Bowen, well, the other thing that Charles Waters was doing, uh, Charles Waters, and was open about this, Charles Waters was actively raising weapons and finding places to train anti-Castro people to go after Castro. So, so this is just a hypothetical situation for the people in your audience. I am Oswald. I run around bragging about how I'm Mr. Big Shot Mercenary Dude who could go after Castro. I do it in front of somebody who happens to have connections in the Bowen, really his real name is Grossi, in the anti-Castro world. And maybe – this is, again, this complete again, speculation. speculation. Maybe Bowen Maybe says, Bowen I'll tell says, you what. I'll tell you what. I want you to put my name down as a reference on a library card. I will give my library card to a friend of mine who works at a place called Moore Chevrolet. If you show up with your library card, you'll know who to talk to because he will have mine. Same exact address, same exact name. He will in turn put you in touch with someone in the Dallas area who is very active in get uh, Castro plots. That somebody would be in this hypothetical scenario, Charles Waters. Now, now the fact that there's this double thing, I don't know what to make of it. Um, and, then, and then there is a third element. Uh, when, uh, you when you hear, when, when they go and talk to the friend who worked at Moore Chevrolet, when they go to talk to Riddell, who had Bowen's library card, Crossy's library card, uh, he but that guy, by the way, worked at Jaggers also. Oh, really? Riddell. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he claims he didn't really have any interaction with Oswald. He doesn't remember Rossi, I mean, Grossi having any interaction with Oswald. Um, um, the only thing the he only adds thing to, he the mix to the mix is that is he and Grossi – and Grossi left Dallas in August of 1963. 
comes back later on, but leaves in August of 1963. Uh, and that timing is interesting to me also. He leaves Jaggers. Um, what he says is that he and and Grossi, Riddell and Grossi, the guy at Moore Chevrolet, uh, they were tr- going to try and form a Texas import-export company that would do business out of Mexico. Now, this is where things get down to the nitty-gritty of how FBI records its information. They describe this as in the in the reading in their in their report as a Texas import company. They take but for whatever reason, the follow-up investigation, whether they either miswrote it on the on the report from Riddell, the guy from Moore, or whether or not they misinterpreted it after the fact, they write it down as the Texas import export company later on when they investigate. So they're very interested in the Texas Import-Export Company. Now, again, Riddell, if he really said a Texas Import Company, Texas Import-Export Company, it was it was just a wild – may have been just a wild goose chase. But if he in fact said we were going to call it the Texas Import-Export Company, we've got another interesting coincidence on our hands, and that's because – Lee R. V. Oswald, amongst his belongings in his in his home, was an address, a P.O. box for the Texas Import Export Company. But it gets more interesting because the FBI looked into that company and they found out that it was not a real company. It was a company that was used by a guy named Alexander Kleinler, and Kleinler comes up elsewhere in the investigation because Kleinler was part of or associated with the white Russian community in which Oswald integrated with. Kleinler actually was a boyfriend for a time with Elena Hall. Mm-hmm. Who, actually who actually gave the Oswalds a place Oswald to stay in 1962. 1962. And, and what Kleinler, Kleinler says, says is, is – and I'd love for anybody, if anybody out there wants to contact me or you who works in the tech, in the import-export business, especially if they worked in it in the 60s, Kleinler's explanation to the FBI was this. I am where I am a real import export representative, and he was. And it's standard operating procedure for us when we go around Europe to make up fake export import export companies to throw off our competition. And so I made up this fake Texas import export company, and I gave it a fake address. And I had it on envelopes, and Oswald simply must have taken it from Elena Hall's home when I was her boyfriend and I was staying with her. Now, call me crazy, but it smells to me like a front. 
And of course, course text-import-export companies were classic fronts for intelligence operations. But I don't know. Kleinlayer is very interesting. I know of at least one person who is suspicious that Kleinlayer himself was intelligence and that he was babysitting Oswald. And, you know, the proof for that is not, you know, super strong. But, you know, one of the fascinating things is the white, one of the white Russians said that when Oswald had still not yet settled in Dallas, right? So all that they knew from newspaper accounts was that he was coming to Dallas uh, at, at, when he first got back from Russia. Kleinlayer expressed open distrust of Oswald. Remember, they hadn't yet met him. Open distrust with Oswald uh, that uh, about having any having the white Russian community have anything to do with Oswald. So there's your three angles. You've got the guy whose name is on the bottom of the library card, who turns out is a career criminal with some very serious mafia connections, including people who are involved in anti-Castro plots. You've got that guy's library card showing up with his friend at Moore Chevrolet, and another person who works at Moore Chevrolet is somebody who impersonated Oswald at least twice, possibly, and was actively involved in trying to raise uh, weaponry, people, etc. for anti-Castro causes as late as 1964. Moore Chevrolet shows up on Oswald's map. And the person who actually had the library card at Moore Chevrolet for Grossi Bowen was trying to create a import-export company with Grossi Bowen that if it was named the Texas Import-Export Company happens to be the same name as the fake import-export company set up by a guy who was Oswald stayed with when Oswald first came back from Russia. So add that all up, and you either got a bunch of rabbit holes, maybe some legitimate leads with one or two rabbit holes, or something that may be a huge key to try and understand and unravel maybe what happened in this case. Wow, yeah, I mean that's that's crazy, man. That's that's fascinating stuff. And uh, one question that popped in my mind is. Now, when when Oswald and and this other guy Bowen uh, were working at, J- at Jagger's Child Stovall, is that is this about the time that he ordered the rifle? You know, I actually have to really look that over. That's a very interesting point um, that has to be delved into. That's probably when I hang when when I get off the phone with you. That's probably the first thing I'm going to do is to check that out. Yeah, I mean, because we know I, I know he ordered the rifles sometime around this time when he. I think it was when he was working there. I could be I could be mistaken, but well, you know, Larry Hancock proposes the following thing, which is very interesting when you think about it in light of what you're just saying, which is, you know, a a, a military based import export, you know, a military based uh, photography surveillance company is not the place where a career con man is going to set up shop. I mean, it's, it's it's even risky in some sense because you know they're gonna you you would expect them to do background checks, right? Right. But Larry well, he, said, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know what a, a, a career con man needs? 
fake identification. Yeah. And a photographic studio is exactly where you go for it. So Larry has proposed the possibility that maybe uh, Grossi, you know, who was under the fake name Bowen, was the person who would have maybe helped or showed Oswald how to make fake identification. Yeah, for which Heidel, becomes, which would be who the ordered Hidel, the gun, <laughs> which is what he would have used to get the gun. Yeah. So it does become a very interesting scenario. Now that you bring it up, and I'm going to have to definitely look into it. Yeah, no doubt. And and of course, another thing I remember the the Hoover member Hoover memorandum that was going around, and I think it was 61 or 62 about somebody was using uh, Oswald's was a birth certificate or something. Yeah, well, that was based off of the problems that were coming up dealing with Marguerite. Yeah, with his mother. Uh, it is fascinating, isn't it, though, that you have a memo from an FBI director in 1961 saying there might be somebody impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald who's going to, two years later, be accused of killing the president? I've always yeah. found that kind of nuts. And you but actually yes, have people impersonating him, you know? Right, and at we least, know well, the, the Bolton Ford incident is pretty solid. It's almost crazy yeah. how solid it actually is. The thing with Carney is a little bit questionable only because the name, you know, Carney is remembering it two years after the fact. But the fact that both of them connect back up to this guy, Charles Waters, becomes incredibly interesting. And, of course, now Charles Waters becomes an incredibly interesting person to try and see. Is he still alive? Um, is there more information on him? Uh, you know, is he worth an FBI FOIA? I'm sure he is. Um, he becomes a very interesting figure, especially because by his own admission, he's super active in Dallas trying to work with anti-Castro groups to get them weapons and supplies. So a question that comes to mind is, is Charles Waters somebody who maybe just throwing this out there would have had something to do with people on the house in Harlandale Street? Which for your audience, if they want to remember, is a building where a woman who turns out to be the mother of a Dallas cop says that she saw Lee Harvey Oswald go into this house now that's you know a debatable proposition. What isn't debatable is radical groups like Alpha 66 were working out of this house in the month before the assassination and suddenly upped and left town right after the assassination. And Waters is the kind of guy with access and hookups to guns and weapons and other exile groups. You, you got to think he's the kind of guy they'd hook up with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I, I know a, a buddy of mine, um, he runs JFK Primary Sources. He's been digging a lot into William Dalzell. And, uh, of course, I know Garrison thought he was CIA. Well, Garrison thought everybody was CIA, but um, I think he's still alive. And uh, Dalzell is still alive? That's that's my wow. understanding. Yeah. Well, that he, could you, you're going to definitely have to hook me up with your friend because I have a pretty good lead on – who Joseph Moore was. Okay. And you know, what was so fascinating about that, that grand jury testimony with Dalzell and I'm then I'll let you finish your thought. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Oh, you're fine. Uh, but what's so fascinating about that grand jury is Dalzell plays completely dumb about Joseph Moore. And, you know, Joseph Moore in some ways would be a more interesting find than waters would be. But um, Dalzell is more than happy to throw waters under the bus, but plays completely dumb about Moore. I have a pretty good lead as to who Moore is, and I think he's still alive. 
So maybe your friend and I can run down both of them and see what they're willing to say because uh, – both – I mean Waters now is incredibly interesting and Morris becoming incredibly interesting has always been incredibly interesting. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I, mean, I think you said the, the last that he could find on Dalzell was he, is that he was living around in an old folks' home somewhere in the D.C. area. So I will travel down to that old folks' home. <laughs> If he's I'll, I'll meet you there. there. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm only I'm only three or four hours away. I go down all the time to do you know document research. I will be happy to show up at William Dozell's old folks' home and interview him. Yeah, well, I'll get in touch with Will. His name's Will Hart. I'll get in touch with him and see if he can actually pin it down a little bit more. Uh, you know, if so we can actually find out where exactly this guy is and and yeah for sure because i mean I th- he probably knows a little bit more than has been said through the years and you know a, a lot of these guys just have never been tracked down and asked the right questions yeah i think i've got some right questions for them now <laughs> yeah. so um yeah i'd love to show up I don't, I don't know where will lives but if he wants to meet me down there that sounds like a nice little research trip for the future yeah, he's he's in Cleveland, I believe, or close to it. All right, well, he got too long of a ride, but I'm happy to go down and find. And if he can find me the home, I'll 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 make the trip. Yeah, well, I'll meet you there. I'm only an hour away, so. Oh yeah, we got to get together then. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, because like I said, I think you know we're 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 uh, seriously running out of time with a lot of these folks, man. Cause... Absolutely, we've got two or three years max. I mean, I'm I'm probably gonna call, uh, quote unquote, um, Joseph Moore, uh, sometime in the next week, actually. Yeah. Now, this guy, um, Waters, he's no relation to Cecil. Well, no, that's Mick Mick Waters. Mick Waters. Never mind. Yeah. No, and you know the unfortunate thing with Waters is, is to have a name Charles Waters makes him a little yeah. bit more difficult to run down. But we do have a middle initial, approximate age. Okay. Um. So we definitely have to run him down if he's still alive. He could very well still be alive. He would have been, you know, like 27 and 63, I think. So you're dealing with a person who would be about 80 now. Yeah, but getting up there and possibly yeah, in the range you know, of could have passed away by now, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, we, you know, all these folks could have family members who are worth, um, mm-hmm. you know, asking questions of. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, if if they would tell anybody anything, it's going to be you know their son or daughter, or you know if they have anything they want to get off their chest before they go. Uh, Absolutely. You know, that's, yeah, family is the, is the big thing. And then of course, if it's something that they want to talk about, that's a whole other issue. But you know, that's a bridge to be crossed when when we get there. But you know, definitely, I w- I will get in touch with Will and and have him send you over what he's got on Dalzell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 is an interesting figure to me now. Um, yeah, and I mean a bunch of those look, New Orleans groups. I, 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 the group that um, I mean it's a completely separate area of research, but the other group that's uh, very interesting to me out of New Orleans is the Committee to Free Cuba. Um, very interesting to me. Um, and a gentleman by the name of Thomas Cuthbert Brady. And I haven't shared all any of that research, but that's uh, 
if I could find that guy, that could be a very interesting discussion too. Yeah. Well, you you never know who's going to listen to this show, Stu. I mean, it's it goes all over the place, and all kinds of people hear it in Texas and Louisiana, and you know, thousands of people listen. So, if anybody out there has any information about anybody that we talked about here today, either get in touch with me or or Stu Wexler, and uh, you know, pass the information on or let them know that we might be interested in wanting to talk to them. That would be yeah, great. You can find me on Facebook, or you can e- email me at swexler2, like my first initial, last name, the number two, swexler2 at hotmail.com. Yeah, for sure, because, I mean, you never know what will shake, shake loose. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's part of where we have to be now. we got to hope that people have little pieces of the puzzle. I can tell you, just as an interesting side story, um, and I have to try and recontact him and find his contact information. After I had talked to people about Licavoli, and I'm only going to give a broad outline of this story because I don't know how much this this person wants me to share. Um, I went into the hall and talked with somebody who knew somebody. Uh, well, it was secondhand. He he had he went to high school with someone who was in the 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 Cleveland mob under Licavoli's control. Um, who was the son of somebody who was in the Cleveland mob under Licavoli's control, who had moved down to Texas. And this guy had, you know, he didn't have any interaction with the son, or really the sons, but he knew a professor who knew the sons. And that professor had said that one of the sons had a very interesting story related to the father and Jack Ruby and maps on his floor in Dallas and definitely something that could potentially connect Licavoli to the crime. Licavoli also connects very closely to a guy named Dominique Bartone. And the, uh, the person who I was looking for was, uh, talk about before was, was Mo Dallas. So Mo Dallas is a Cleveland mobster who was very close to Licavoli uh, and the Mayfield, Mayfield Road mob. And Dallas, you know, is very close with Roselli. They run Vegas casinos together. So, I mean, it's yeah. there's ways where these things all can tie up into mafia CIA plots. But, you know, again, there's three angles to this. Um, again, if any of the viewers out there, or listeners, I should say, were in the import-export business in the 1960s, I would love to know if their story that Kleinlayer told that you that it was standard operating procedure to make up fake names and fake import-export businesses to throw off your competition. I would love to know if that's true. Yeah, well, you know what pops in my head, Stu, is, of course, George from Seinfeld and his Vandalay Industries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe this guy did business with George, and George is connected to the Kennedy assassination, the magic spitter. Yeah, the magic loogie. Yeah. yeah. Now that's full circle, baby. That's what we yeah. call it. <laughs> I think we just solved the Kennedy assassination. Yep, hell yeah. 
No, man, good stuff. And, of course, Will, like I said, he's from Cleveland, so he might know a little bit more about Licavoli and these guys too. Yeah, you definitely have to hook me up with Will because the Licavoli mob is – and the Mayfield Road mob may wind up being a a more significant factor here than we realized. Yeah, no doubt. Well, man, that's fascinating stuff, Stu. Uh, Really, I mean, stuff that wasn't even on my radar. But, you know, one thing I've been thinking about lately is, is, of course, about the rifle. and. I always thought it possible that since it was ordered under this alias and since there, you know, Oswald had, you know, of course, false identification for this alias and he was working, handing out these flyers for the fair play for Cuba committee under, you know, under this alias or, or this alias was a secretary or what, whatever the deal was there. But that this gun could be tied back to Alec Heidel. Okay. That's who ordered the gun that there was maybe it was, meant to be uh you know this fictitious pro castro uh fictional character that took the rap for the Kennedy assassination and maybe Oswald was just facilitating um you know actually getting the weapon into the building but it was actually somebody else who was shooting from a different location um and maybe Oswald didn't think that it could ever be tied back to him you know that would be my favorite theory, actually, if I were to – you know, it's speculative, but I tend to go with Oswald bringing the right weapon into the building and the likelihood that somebody else maybe fired the shot. Um, it's super tricky, of course, because, you know, um, as Jerry Dealey points out, it would be pretty hard to navigate around – the, the school book the depository, depository as a stranger, as a stranger without somebody, somebody noticing, noticing you. Right. But, but on the flip, on the flip yeah, yeah. Again, again, I mean, I, mean, I will tell I you will this, tell you, this you, know, you know, somebody, somebody I didn't even I realize didn't it until I started talking to somebody about my presentation, my presentation and it caught them. Caught them. Uh, do you remember the name of the friend who had the library card at the, uh, at the yeah, more Chevrolet? Yeah, Riddell. Riddell. Yeah. So, again, I think it's probably a reach, but hey, anything's possible. It is interesting. And I do, by the way, have somebody who's working with me on on some of those angles too. I think if we pulled forces, we might be able to maybe develop this into something pretty intense. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get a hold of Will, and, and we'll get to cracking on some of this stuff, see if we can't shake some stuff loose and, and, and uncover even more, for sure. Yep, yep. All right, Stu. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and, and talking with me, and hopefully uh, we enlighten some folks out there. I, I know you enlightened me. Uh, so thank you very much for coming on the show. Okay, okay. It was great being on. You have a good one. You have a good one. All right, you hang on the line for me, Stu. Everybody, for, for some other stuff we talked about here today, I'm going to put links up, um, some photos over at tlgpodcast.com. Uh, always, as that's the place to go to for more about what we talked about here. That's it, people. This some bitches in the can. Beam up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's largest mortgage lender. I've got great news. Mortgage interest rates have dropped. So if you're thinking about buying a home, right now is the time to lock that low rate, even before you find the home of your dreams. With our exclusive Rate Shield approval, the low rate you lock today is protected for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. With a Rate Shield approval, if rates go up, your low rate stays locked. But if rates go down, you get that new, even lower rate. Either way, you win. Talk to us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com to take advantage. Here's another great reason to work with us. For a record nine years in a row, J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in the nation in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination. Again, to lock in today's low mortgage interest rate and get the security of our exclusive rate shield approval, call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year fixed rate loans. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030.